Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin, and my guest today is Sean Filer, the Chief Investment Officer at Equinox Partners. And today we talk about a handful of things, including bank consolidation, obviously on the back of First Republic. I got Sean's thoughts on what he thinks might happen next, where to look within regional banks and within their balance sheets to determine who is maybe more vulnerable to becoming next on the bank insolvency chopping block, and then the opportunity that this creates for the country's largest banks like JP Morgan. Good, bad, or ugly, it does create a big opportunity for them. And if we see further consolidation, how that might impact economic activity, innovation, and entrepreneurship in the United States. We also talked about QE and how it's going to relate to inflation numbers over the coming year. I got Sean's thoughts on de-dollarization and what, if any, role gold might play in this budding trend. And of course, as always, I figured out where Sean is allocating capital and he shares a lot of sound advice on where he's putting cash and why specifically in the silver sector. So overall, fascinating interview. I know you're going to enjoy this as much as I did. As always, right beneath this piece of content, there is a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday. I love writing it. I'd love to have you join the team. Here is Sean Filer. Enjoy. All right, here I am with Sean Filer on the Jay Martin Show. Sean, it's great to see you and thanks so much for making the time. Jay, thank you for having me. Well, there's a few different directions that I want to go today, um, but why don't we start with First Republic Bank? And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the impacts of further bank consolidation, if this poses any broader risks by allowing one bank to become so powerful in terms of percentage of American depositors that now have cash there. Do you see any risks here, Sean? And do you have any thoughts on further consolidation? So the, the precipitating event, both in so uh, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic is the interest rate risk. And so when you go through the bank balance sheets, you can quantify that pretty quickly. And if there's not other soft spots in the balance sheet, um, you think the crisis could be pretty contained because you can figure out where interest rates are, you can mark their high quality bonds to market. Um, the issue I think is really is the, the next shoe to drop, which is the softness in the commercial real estate market and potentially the consumer loans in a recession. Uh, that shoe is definitely not dropped yet. And so that's why I think you're seeing the hesitancy around the acquires, amongst the acquires of, um, well now most recently First Republic. And so I think there is more banking stress to come. I think the um, lending standards and the restrictions on lending standards that we're going to see is going to be recessionary. Uh, and so I think it's still, I won't say first inning, but I think we're still in maybe inning three or four of what how this banking cycle plays out here. And so in response to these crises, you're forecasting stricter rules around lending, decreasing the velocity of money. Uh, leading to more recessionary activity. Is that, did I gather that correctly? Yeah, so tighter lending standards, I think you're certainly going to see that, right? So you've impaired a fair amount of bank capital, and then you have additional bank capital left to impair because of the weakness in the commercial real estate market and because of the, I think, likely weakness in the consumer market. So um, I think that's still ahead of us. Uh, you know, the, the, the FDIC and the 
Treasury market, the, the, the Treasury uh, Biden administration have tried to walk a fine line here where they wanted to give depositors the sense that their deposits are money good, while at the same time not really extending a blanket guarantee. Um, so far, I think they've played that game reasonably well uh, from their perspective. You know, I think just the whole structure we have where we have banks that are levered 20 to 1 and guaranteed by the government. So that's equity uh, as a percentage of um, their total assets is 5%. So they're levered 20 to 1. That's just a recipe for trouble. Uh, if you go back 120 years, right, to the turn of the uh, 20th century, you had banks levered 3 to 1. So there you could have you could have banking crisis, you could wipe, wipe out shareholders or impair shareholders, but not impair depositors. And you could have a more kind of laissez-faire uh, regulatory structure around fractional reserve banking. Today, these banks are so levered, it's just going to be every 10 years or so, we're going to have this kind of dynamic uh, where you're going to have some stress in the system. You're going to have some banks that have indeterminate amounts left of actual equity, and you're going to have regulators colluding with the, those particular banks and with the banking sector to make sure depositors feel comfortable keeping their money in these banks that don't really have much equity. Mm, okay. I'm with you there. And then, you know, if we see further instability, whether banks that are exposed to commercial real estate or various consumer loans, as you said, that might be uh, more exposed to risk than other sectors, is this anything but a massive opportunity for banks, a small number of banks like JP Morgan, like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, that could actually make a case, as in, I, I think several banks made a case to uh, take over First Republic. You know, the FDIC awarded it to JPM. It was the best offer on the table, I suppose. But is this anything but good news for the, the for America's biggest banks in terms of adding scale and just accretive value through the acquisition of insolvent banks? Well, yeah, that's a little, that's the scandal, right? So. Um... Too big to fail is obviously still too big to fail. So Silicon Valley Bank, um, you know, regardless of how much money you had deposited there, you were made whole uh, by the federal government. And if that was a small regional bank, did the same thing happen? Well, the answer is, looks like kind of yes, probably uh, still. Uh, right. If it keeps going, is that is that guarantee the same for every little regional bank? Maybe not. And so then that drives rational depositors into the large institutions and they don't have to sit there and analyze JP Morgan's balance sheet or a derivative book. They just have to say, look, it's, you know, it's got over $2 trillion in footings. You know, it's, it's not going away, right? So I'm going to be money good there regardless of what asset problem they have. And I think that's, that's a problem that I don't see policymakers eager to solve. It's just, it's a very tricky problem to solve. And the real way to solve it is you require higher amounts of capital in the banking system. Uh, so you have a, a bigger margin for error. Nobody wants that because it will depress bank ROEs and force up lending rates would be uh, contractionary from a credit perspective uh, as banks try to achieve a, a reasonable return with a higher amount of equity. Um, so there'd be a lot of pushback and uh, on trying to better capitalize these banks. So I think the the current system, kind of a version of the current system, is probably the path of least resistance, which is likely kind of what we're likely to have, I think, for the foreseeable future. And if you're a regulator, you know, would it not be the easier path if there were fewer banks to regulate, you know, less fish to organize, 
and if you could consolidate the nation's depositors into as few. And I'm 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 not walking down some conspiracy. I'm just curious, you know, your thoughts on this. It would it not be in their almost in their best interest if they were to propose maybe new legislation two, three years down the path, if they have to do so to less more influential parties, it makes the job easier. Would it? Well, that, I mean, that's what almost every other country has done, right? So America has this very long tail of small banks that most other countries don't have for exactly the reasons you articulate, okay. is you want to concentrate the number of banks because it, as you would, exactly as you say, Jay, it makes it easier for the regulators, which is the is is the problem they're trying to solve for. I think from a economic justice and from a distribution of wealth perspective, that's a horrible outcome for America, right? What community community banks do something that the large banks don't do, right? They they take mobilized deposits in a community and then lend that money back into that same community, right? And I think there's a huge social value to that. There's a, if you live anywhere other than the uh, main concentrations of wealth in America, you should have a very deep interest in preserving that ability to recycle that wealth regionally back into those communities. You can have it done by these very large institutions by forcing it from some kind of regulatory uh, uh, statutory uh, uh, basis to force them to lend back in these communities. But it's very artificial and you get a lot of distortions in that. Really, I think from a um, from an overall economic health perspective, what you would really want would be a banker that understands and knows the local community and businesses where he operates and is mobilizing those deposits and you know lending them back into that same community. And we're just a long way from that for lots of reasons. We're a long way from that because of the way we've regulated all banks and because of the way that we've incentivize the concentration of the banking industry. So these are these are real issues. I'm just very uh, skeptical that we're going to solve these issues in DC. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you want banks to be very competitive with each other. You want tons of little fish fighting for a greater piece of the pie. Should you take your business plan to a bank, you know, you want to be able to take it to market and to, I think, a market with some scale so you can walk down street A, talk to this bank B and get terms that are more agreeable with you. Or if you're a super high risk bet, find some terms at all. If there's four or five banks to choose from, you know, you're kind of backed into a corner, correct? And this would limit investment in entrepreneurship would therefore stymie innovation. I mean, entrepreneurship is like the character trait of America, right? This is, it's like what we the country's built on. Well, we've taken away, I mean, the, the critical thing that's happened in the banking sector is we've taken away the discretion of the banker. So that's okay. these two large forces. One is technology and the other is regulation. And so those forces combined have uh, systematized banking and bank lending in particular, especially in um, smaller communities where you don't have a, a local underwriter making determinations about who and who isn't a better creditor, a credit, who has, you know, that local underwriter that we kind of would imagine from 50 or 60 years ago uh, that would know the better actors, the, you know, the better business uh, people in that local community and making very prudent decisions based on that very uh, particular knowledge they have. Uh, because of the way that we've undercapitalized the banking sector and then overregulated the banking sector and then imposed technology on top of that overregulation, we've totally tied the hands 
of that community banker to make those kind of reasonable decisions. And instead, what we have in a lot of community banks is we have just a, uh, or bank branches of large banks, is that chief executive is basically a marketing officer. So he's there to sell products that are at the individual level or underwritten by an algorithm, right? At the corporate level are, if they're larger loans are underwritten centrally, not that in that bank branch. And he's following not because he's choosing to do so, but because the uh, systems that that bank runs on force him to do so, force him to follow this totally Byzantine set of rules as to how and where he can extend credit. And so uh, unbundling all that is really problematic because we've lost the uh, the know-how that allowed uh, that distributed decision-making in our banking system 50 years ago. We've We've eliminated a lot of those people. And so it's really hard to put it back together. It's a big problem would be the capital and the deregulation I think you would need to solve this um, is not, I don't think, something policymakers are going to find attractive at this point. So therefore, right, we more than likely continue down the path of further consolidation. I mean, I guess if I were to try to extrapolate what you just said and spit it back to you, it's like, this is the path we're going to continue to keep on going because the alternative is just too expensive or too complex. Is that? I think there's a political lobby against the further centralization. Um, against further, yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, there are there is a, a powerful independent uh, bankers association. You have in Texas and other states. Um, the large banks had to buy off some of these smaller banks to go along with some of the Dodd Frank reforms. Um, so I think it's a it's a there's a lot of complexity there, and I think there is enough political representation for um, the states that aren't home to these money center banks in the Senate, for sure, uh, that you're not going to have a regulatory system that's going to concentrate uh, banking, as you would see in uh, Spain or in much of Europe, where you really take the entirety of that system and you concentrate it into two banks or five banks. It's the regulatory's dream, regulator's dream. You regulate five big banks. Um, uh, but I don't see us moving to that kind of system in America. I just think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of political reasons why that wouldn't be a likely outcome. Okay. Now, you know what I hear in response to this conversation often from my viewers is this is the path that walks us towards the rollout of a central bank issued digital currency. And simply like the roll-up strategy is really effective. Like I've invested in a couple of companies, one uh, healthcare company, they were rolling up doctor clinics. They had a telemedicine software they wanted to roll out, but they needed to acquire some scale first. They got really lucky. This was in 2018, obviously telemedicine blew up in 2020 and they were able to roll their platform out to hundreds of clinics across the US. Seen the same thing in the uh, dental sector, actually. Um, a company that was rolling up dental clinics and dental labs and then pairing product with distribution. Um, and so the, the CBDC concern that I hear a lot from my viewers is like, step one is roll up the client base, right? Roll up the pipeline and consolidate all the depositors. And then if and when some kind of a CBDC was rolled out, you know, you've got a much more streamlined process to do so, uh, making it more challenging for any kind of opposition to that. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Uh, well, I think the, the current problem with rolling out a CBDC is there is opposition, right? When you have 
Ron DeSantis coming out um, and saying that he is opposed to a CBDC and that he doesn't believe the Biden administration and the Fed currently have the authority to do so without legislation and making that explicit in, in a tweet. And you have um, Patrick McHenry of um, uh, North Carolina, uh, chair of the uh, banking subcommittee in the House, um, asking uh, Merrick Garland for a their internal legal work on the their constitutional authority, their legislative authority, their their statutory authority to move forward with the CBDC without authorizing uh, legislation, and Merrick Garland stonewalling McHenry on that. Um, I think the CBDC at this point, at this point in American politics is political enough um, that it would be a really heavy lift to for the Biden administration to do this going into 2024. I think it would look um, really heavy handed. I think it would make it a really hot button issue in the presidential uh, nomination process for Republicans in the contest generally. And I don't think they would do that. So unless there was a real crisis, I think they're stuck until 25. Okay. Okay. I want to pivot a little bit uh, and talk about uh, Fed balance sheet, maybe. And so Fed's been at work reducing their balance sheet a little bit, uh, a couple of hiccups in that road. But, um, you know, I know you're looking at the budget deficit forecasted around 1.4 trillion, I believe, but um, let's say it's, Let's say that's accurate. Let, let's just say that, right? Is okay. it foreseeable that um, we don't see any expansion? I mean, what do you? What's your expectation for quantitative easing in response to colossal deficits over the next couple of years? Yeah. So I'd start by contesting your starting premise a little in terms of the QT that we've seen. Basically, I think we've seen six period of quantitative easing so far. So you officially would have four. Uh, but if you throw in the fall of 2019 repos that were 600 billion that made it way onto the Fed balance sheet, and then the last little episode here of the Silicon Valley Bank QE that we saw, that would get us to six. And you know the QT has really been very modest in relationship to the, the quantitative tightening has been very modest to the last now it's almost 15 years, right? This fall will be 15 years of quantitative easing. So, um, you know, if we do have a trillion four deficit, we had it was 1.1 trillion in the first six months of this year. Um, and last year was a trillion four. So that's FY 2022. So I think it's reasonable to expect FY 2023 could be substantially larger than that. And the banks, as we just talked about, aren't eager to put additional assets on their balance sheets. And foreign Foreign central banks are no longer sizable regular buyers uh, in the U.S. Treasury market. So that's got to go somewhere. Um, and even with a strong dollar and even with America as an attractive investment destination, I think the likelihood that some, if not a lot of those, have to wind up on the Fed's balance sheet seems the most likely outcome. Um, and that's not too far away, right? We solved the debt ceiling issue here in the next month or so. Uh, and then at that point, we're going to see some more sizable issuance out of Treasury. And the question is, is the market really in a position to absorb all that without the Fed's help? And we're going to find out, I think, here pretty soon. Now, we're probably going to see a bunch of bunch of uh, political antics around the debt ceiling. And I 
would probably qualify it as, as theater and not much more. We know what's going to happen. We'll suspend or extend as we do with debts that we can't pay. You know, is there anything more to it than that? Or is there is there any possibility of a different outcome, Sean, from your perspective, other than just we're, we're going to deliberate, debate, and then raise as we've done the last, I think, 78 times the debt ceiling's been hit? Yeah, I don't think we default whether uh, McCarthy can extract some actual cuts out of Biden, I think remains a open political question. I think it would behoove McCarthy to get some cuts. Um, I think for, you know, the, the the budget that that the Biden administration proposed is really um, extraordinarily aggressive. So if you think about it just in broad brushstrokes, he's got spending going up to 25% of GDP and income without the, the, the revenues for the federal government without tax increases are about 18%. So you're talking about structurally a six to seven percent fiscal deficit, and uh, that's in an economic expansion with interest rates uh, under their assumptions, I think, still below inflation and very, very low in nominal uh, terms. So um, that's insane uh, compared to where we've been uh, over the last 40 or 50 years, and the last 40 or 50 years have been pretty rough from a deficit perspective. So um, I think it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if McCarthy's able to get something, claw something back there. Uh, but the, the path for those large structural deficits, I think, is it seems really pretty hard to deviate from without a crisis. Uh, it's just a big gap and the constituencies for the spending are just, um, I think, really entrenched. What's your take? So on a few of the topics we've discussed uh, the, the likelihood of further easing in the future, coupled with the likelihood of tighter lending in the future, reducing the vo- velocity of money. You know, how does this, how do you balance those factors in terms of creating an economic outlook uh, leading to, you know, you, you think tighter fiscal control, tighter lending control leads to a recession, destroys demand, maybe helps tame inflation, but we're stacking on some more easing, it's kind of like throwing kerosene on a fire. However, at the same time, like where do you, how do you balance those two forces? And do you see them as as simple as two forces? I guess is is also yeah. I think the the policy mix starts to become incoherent. I think that's just the reality, right? So if you look at a lot of the emerging world, you'll find interest rates below the rate of inflation, uh, rising in unsustainable debt levels. Uh, QE and financial repression. Right. And it's not a policy mix you choose because you sat down in a room and you say, what's a good policy mix? It's a policy mix that you choose because of all the political and financial constraints that you have. And the policy mix we're, I think, going edging to in the United States is more of this policy mix that's not it's not consistent, it's not logical, it's a product of all of the constraints. And so the specific policy mix that I think is likely and particularly problematic is quantitative easing along with inflation that is higher than our target rate. So going back to 2008, when we started and we did the first round of QE, right? the idea that we would do QE in a crisis where we were going to have a debt deflation and disorderly debt markets and capital markets more generally made sense. The idea that we would do QE during an economic expansion when we had more inflation than we wanted just is 
seems impossible 15 years ago. And now that's exactly, I think, where we're, where we're headed. In fact, we just did a little QE here on the back of Silicon Valley Bank. And we did the QE we did in the fall of 2019, pre-COVID. Uh, stocks were up. Unemployment was at record lows. And the uh, secured overnight funding rate spiked from 3 to 9%. And all of a sudden, we had it was $600 billion of repo uh, that we added to the Fed's balance sheet. And so um, when we have that kind of compelled QE, and now we're going to have compelled, it's kind of like QE, where we're paying interest on the reserves, right? So if we're paying 5% on $6 trillion of reserves and repos, that's not quite $300 billion, but almost $300 billion that we're transferring to the private sector every year. And we're not doing that just because it's a great macro uh, macroeconomic policy. We're doing that because we have to, and we're doing that despite the fact that we have higher inflation than we want. And so that all describes to me a scenario that's much more akin to what we see in the rest of the world, which is, you know, is not always internally that consistent and logical. Yeah. So if the United States continues to trend towards mirroring the monetary and fiscal policy of some less fortunate emerging countries, like, does this not, do you think this adds continued momentum to the de-dollarization of large economies that can afford to de-dollarize in some way and either trade on the back of just straight commodities or commodity backed currencies or sovereign currencies. But do you think this continues to accelerate that trend? And is that a trend worth paying attention to? Because the question I often get from like my super hardcore gold bug audience is, is like, it's all about the, the trend of de-dollarization and, and um, you know, major economies moving off of the U S dollar, but the more, I don't know, I guess, passive, opinions on this is like, these are small transactions on the margin and they're not yet really that significant. And people who say the US dollar isn't back to anything are forgetting about the military and the economic strength and the education system and medical system. And the net asset value of America is bigger than, you know, there's a lot, a lot going on there. But, but what are your thoughts on the trend of de-dollarization and how that may play a role, if at all, and, and uh, any forecasts you have there? Well, the, so who who's the decision maker, I think, in terms of the acquisition of those incremental um, government bonds that we're going to be issuing? And it's not the uh, citizens of the world, it's the central banks of the world. And so are they going to be the buyers of that incremental trillion and a half or two trillion dollars worth of supply and then not just a trillion and a half in one year right or 1.4 trillion was the cbo's estimate for fy 23 but then a trillion plus every year right and on average two trillion over the next 10 years sure. it's a lot of supply for the uh, rest of the world's central banks to absorb and uh what we're seeing is instead of them uh, at the ready to buy those bonds, we see them buying record amounts of gold. And so I think we are seeing that shift uh, in the market. Um, I presume there will be lots of uh, deals. I presume that a lot of our allies will be more inclined to buy uh, our debt than they might just be based on uh, their naked financial interest. And maybe there's um, Maybe we can lend them that money. There's maybe there's lots of things we can do to facilitate those purchases. Um, but if you look at that wall of supply that's coming every year for as far as the eye can see, I think you have a hard time figuring out where all that's going to go. I think it's just hard to find the balance sheets where you're going to put that much incremental supply of U.S. debt. 
And I think then that is a big problem for the Fed's credibility. It makes it look like the Fed has a responsibility to backstop um, the Treasury market. Um, and that damages the Fed's credibility and that damages the appeal of the dollar. So I think all of those pieces are in place. And, you know, I think it's a movie playing out in slow motion until it maybe goes faster. And when that tipping point is, I don't know. But um, it doesn't seem that far away. And I think the the higher deficits this year, the higher versus the CBO's projections are going to be, uh, uh, we're going to have, something's going to have to change. We're going to have to have a new buyer is going to have to appear in the market for those bonds to find a home. Any speculation about who or what that buyer could be? Well, the most, most I think the most likely buyer is the Fed. And that's it, though. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. could put. I mean, you can put it on the other central banks' balance sheets, right? So the Japanese could come and decide to do what they haven't been doing and decide that they want more treasuries, and the ECB could buy more treasuries, and the Swiss could buy more treasuries, and you know the the um, Russia is certainly not going to buy more treasuries. Probably not. And I don't know if we're going to convince China to buy more treasuries, right? So, um, and the geopolitics of the Middle East have changed quite a bit. So the idea that they're going to buy a lot more treasuries, that's also not clear. So, um, you know, this is exactly, this is roll back to the early 70s. This is exactly what we had to do to stabilize the dollar. We had to convince um, the exporters of oil uh, to recycle those dollars back into the recycle those proceeds back into into the treasury market into U.S. dollars, and if you look at the um, the potential buyers and who we can convince, it's a shorter list than you would like. It's not the if you go back ten years, right? That's a much longer list. Um, it's a smaller list today, and uh, it's not clear. There's no end in sight to the amount of supply that we're going to have in the treasury market. And so I think it's um, I think it's a structural issue. So if you were to think forward like 10 years, 15 years, you know, are we operating in a in a multipolar currency world where there's um, where commodities and international trade occur in two or three currencies? Well, we, so we're already operating in a multi-currency uh, world from a trade perspective, right? So the number of the amount of trade dominate, denominated in yuan versus dollars is not not the same, but the the yuan have a real share. It's just in terms of the the foreign currency reserves where they have still a diminutive share because the yuan's not convertible. But in terms of the actual yeah. denomination of trade, the yuan has taken a very substantial share globally. Um, I do think we probably moved to a a much more multipolar world. I think gold plays a real role in that uh, more multipolar world in terms of the, the world's reserve currencies. But I think that's probably the best case scenario. I think that's maybe a little too optimistic. I think that that move to that system is probably coupled with a lot of financial repression. So typically, going back to the example of the other countries, uh, that the emerging market countries that have all these stupid combinations of policies, uh, they they then add to that dumb combination of low rates, high reserve requirements on banks, forcing the banks to buy the government bonds and finance the government, um, high rates of inflation and high fiscal deficits. They usually add some form of either soft or in many cases, a little harder uh, restrictions on the free movement of capital um, to make the math work. Um, so I think that set of uh, that 
I, I don't think we've seen the end of financial repression. I just think we're going to see more of it. I think you've seen a lot of soft financial repression. Certainly everybody involved in Bitcoin has seen a fair amount of financial repression. Um, and you can imagine seeing some of those same types of problems applied to other transactions that are um, problematic when it comes to financing the federal government. Can I, can I ask you a question that might be somewhat juvenile? How, how would financial repression affect an everyday consumer like you or I, as I'm going about my busy life. And well, I mean, you could take the, you know, in Argentina, uh, financial repression meant your pension assets got invested in government bonds. Um, your dollar assets were pacified, right? So that's the extreme parentist version of financial repression. Okay. Um, I think a, a lighter touch financial repression is um, just excluding some certain assets from the financial system. So you saw this, so Bitcoin, you've seen this with. So if you're a bank, do you really want to be deeply involved in uh, Bitcoin financing? And the, you know, based on the regulatory outcomes we've seen recently, the answer is well, probably not, or certainly not as, as, as inclined as I was to be six or eight months ago, right? The regulators seem to have a little bit of a, a problem. Uh, and the same thing with, say, gold, right? So commercial banks, FDIC-insured banks, can't offer gold-denominated deposits. Um, so there's lots of subtle ways where we can make it just harder for you to, say, buy gold. You can't just go open a gold-denominated bank account. And when you sell gold, you're going to pay a collectibles tax uh, plus your state tax instead of your long-term capital gains, regardless of how long you hold it. And it's not just America that does this. We're seeing this. So Germany just imposed their VAT tax on silver purchases. So I think we're going to see a lot of that kind of um, those kind of policies, that kind of repression. So how does it affect you if you're an average German and you wanted to buy some silver coins and you did it last year, you didn't pay VAT. And now this year you pay a 17% VAT. Yeah. So that's a, you know, there you go. There's a change. Okay. Okay. Um, thank you for that. Appreciate that. Okay, so I want to uh, I want to pivot to the silver sector a little bit. We're, we're talking about that now. Um, prior to this interview, you said you were adding exposure to the silver sector uh, to your portfolio, and I'm curious what that looks like for you. What direction to go with your capital, and if you're looking strictly from an industrial demand standpoint, or monetary, or both. Okay, um, so if you look at the so the, the World Silver Institute just put out their report last month. And uh, we had a record deficit in 2022, uh, over 200 million ounces, 240 million ounces almost. And that's on a, a billion ounce market per year. And we're seeing those drawdowns that correspond to that kind of deficit in the visible inventories in London, which are now below uh, a billion ounces. And more importantly, we see the future where we have demand that is consistently 15 to 20% above supply. And you look at those deficits and for us, we do a lot of investing in the silver sector. We're invested in a number of silver mines. And so we have, I think, a real good appreciation for what's likely to happen in terms of the mine supply, how long those projects take to come online and how negatively impacted the mining industry in Latin America has been by the deterioration in politics really across Latin America. 
And so how unlikely there is to be a supply response and how unattractive a lot of those projects are from an investment perspective. So if you look in Guatemala, where you have the Escobar mine still shut down, um, or in Mexico, where MAG just brought on the Juan Cipio, uh joint venture with Fresnillo, but they're not going to do the expansion. And the reason why Escobar shut down and, and the Juan Cipio, uh joint venture is not going through the expansion is politics. Um, the... There's political uh, support in Guatemala uh, for the mine, but the courts are against it. And in Mexico, both the courts and the government are seem to be pretty much against mining. You can't get the permits, and then the security situation has been terrible. And so I think the supply of silver uh, from the mining sector is not likely to go up at all, even with much higher prices. And then the drivers for that demand look very well entrenched, and the investment demand that's part of that uh, 15 to 20% uh, excess of demand over uh, supply remain very modest. So there's 300 ounces, 300 million ounces a year of uh, bar and coin demand. And I think that could be quite a bit higher than that. I just don't think there's been much enthusiasm behind, behind silver because the price hasn't been, um, it really hasn't appreciated that much. Not yet. Yeah. Do you, so that's, so, so thinking through, the high level supply and demand picture, do you tend to sweat any short-term um, recessionary impact on industrial demand? Or like, for example, when I look at base metals, I look at copper, for example, like I don't know what next quarter or even next year is going to look like, but I have enough confidence in the long-term supply and demand economics of copper to be bullish and given my time horizon, which is not a quarter or a year, it's you know five years, um, I'm confident in my thesis. Now, when you're looking at silver, do you factor in the short-term economic uh, forecast and does that impact uh, your outlook on the silver sector? And I guess, how much do you look at near-term pricing? Uh, so our holding periods are probably some, our hold, typical holding periods, five years. So we try for 10 and we average five. So we're not looking at a quarterly basis. Um, if you look at the drivers of industrial demand in silver, so the biggest single driver there is uh, solar. So that's, I think, a secular, not a, as much a cyclical uh, demand driver. Um, so I think there, if you break down the pieces of industrial demand and then the other demand for silver, I think you can get much more comfortable with silver even in a recession than you could say in the case of copper where half the demand, half of it's consumed by China, right? And okay. so, um, so I think you can get more optimistic about it. I'll say that in terms of what we do, the big problem we've had in silver has been, you know, we've we've made money over the last you know, 12 years while the GDXJ has been down. And the way we've done that is by stock picking. And so looking through companies uh, where a lot of, I think a lot of the investors have just been, um, you know, it's been a very deep, very long bear market. And so there, a lot of the other investors are just no longer there. And so we've added value through stock selection. And the big issue that we faced in silver has been almost all of those pure play silver companies are in Latin America. And Latin America has been such a difficult place to invest. We've we found a couple of opportunities. We found an opportunity in Peru. Uh, we still have some investments in Mexico. But silver, unlike gold, we actually just we do own some uh, we do own some futures. Uh, because okay. uh, it's been so hard uh, going through and picking the particular silver mines. I see. Okay. Okay. You know, 
you mentioned the challenges in Latin America a few times, and you actually picked out Argentina once as a as an example of financial repression, how this could impact you. And I just thought, you know, I have a buddy in, in Buenos Aires is a money manager down there. He's managing money through 107% year over year inflation. I mean, the, <laughs> the challenges that he's dealing with in terms of keeping people's portfolios safe. And I just, it's so fascinating to me to chat with him about how do entrepreneurs operate in an environment where you might see 10% month over month inflation and a lot of your, and a lot of your goods. And, and, um, you know, it's hard to wrap hard for a Canadian American to wrap my mind around those kind of numbers and how I would even begin to navigate the basic necessities of my life. Um, so on the silver front, back to that, here's a question for you. So we could, we could lay out the supply, the, the shortage of supply in the silver sector. We could do the same in copper. You could arguably do the same in gold and nickel. In almost every hard rock commodity, you could lay out a case to say, you know, we're massively undersupplied for the incoming demand. And there's a handful of reasons for that. The sector in general has just been undercapitalized. Why is that the case? Well, you know, prices have kind of been at the dump, but also the industry as a whole has been largely out of favor in terms of any media or sentiment support. It's been regulated to death in a lot of cases. Now we've seen, we're seeing a new tailwind and the tailwind is a lot of very vocal parties who are trying to push us off of fossil fuel energy into renewable power, which is great. Like, let's figure this out, but think through the process in order for us to replace fossil fuel in any meaningful way we would have to permit every mine around the world overnight, right? To get the supply of the copper, the nickel, the lithium, the cobalt, the manganese, the vanadium, the silver, you name it, to build the technology to actually power um, meaningful renewable energy. So my question for you is on the heels of a, the same green movement that largely hamstrung the mining industry, now that green movement is promoting uh, the build out of renewable energy, could that create uh, a friendlier environment for mineral extraction because of the green use case within the end user? Is that a scenario you could see where where regulation starts trending in favor of of mineral extraction? Super theoretical. I mean, it's just not it's not even tangentially connected to what's actually going on, right? So the um, the environmental movement is radically anti-mining and they're not anti-mining because they want to stop the bad mines. They're anti-mining full stop. And we see them, they push money into indigenous groups in like Latin America is where, where we've had the most trouble. So they're funding uh, indigenous groups. They're funding um the judiciaries in uh, in these countries influencing the, the judiciary uh, in Guatemala in particular through the UN. Uh, and so you wind up with a system where if you get a president that you want in the country where you're trying to operate, you still can't get stuff done because you have community problems, indigenous problems, and you have legal problems. And then if you don't get the president that you want, you got a president as opposed to mining, then you have <laughs> no mining anyway. So it's like a, a heads I win, tails you lose. There's no way forward. And then they're not particularly subject to the law themselves when they're in power. So if you look at Mexico right now, you know, any of the laws or rules about, you know, issuing permits, I mean, that is just totally out the window. And then, um, you know, we had a mine in Zacatecas 
It was built and the government took more than a year to allow them to plug it into the grid just because the mining minister is anti-mining. And um, so uh, I, it's it's a interesting theoretical argument and is no uh, basis in actual lived reality at this point. So the environmental movement is just radically internally inconsistent, right? None of the math works. Um, the most obvious aspect of the inconsistency here would be if you're really interested in carbon uh, reduction, a greenhouse gas reduction, natural gas and natural gas displacing coal and oil and other forms of fuel would be the single best thing you could do. And the, the environmental movement is radically opposed to natural gas and natural gas pipelines. So um, it's interesting, uh, but you can have a movement that itself doesn't have to be even internally consistent on their own terms. And that seems to really not cre cre create much of any internal tension within the environmental movement. Okay, I, I, I tried. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm living it. Um, yeah. You know, the countries where we've had a lot of, of more success have been in Africa and okay. uh, West Africa in particular. Um, and there's a lot of headline risk in uh, West Africa, but we've seen on time, on budget projects, um, great geology communities that are motivated um, to work in the mines, to uh, advance the mining industry. Uh, and returns that correspond with that. And uh, I'd say the rest of the world has been more uneven with Latin America being decidedly uniformly, almost uniformly bad. Well, I want to I want to pull on that thread then. So um, any other jurisdictions, Sean, that stand out to you as as appealing? You know, it doesn't mean they're they're safe or predictable, but uh, relative to where else you could look. Well, so Canada has been a good jurisdiction. Um, it depends where in Canada. Quebec is a great jurisdiction. Ontario is a great jurisdiction. Um, uh, Nevada is generally a pretty good jurisdiction. Uh, in the United States, lots of unevenness. You know, if you're if you're across the border in Idaho, you know, it might be for never, you know, forever or never that you get your permit. Um, so I think those have been some better jurisdictions. Australia remains a better jurisdiction. You had lots of issues with labor inflation and COVID and lockdowns in Australia that created a very difficult labor market, but that seems to be largely behind us. So I think generally speaking, Australia is also a better jurisdiction. Um, and then I would say a lot of the rest of the world is complicated and it's um, particular asset um, may be attractive and another one may not be. And then okay. there's a lot of countries which are just, you know, like Argentina. Uh, Argentina is just, it, it, you know, it's, it's just too hard, right? You can't, you, you can't operate there. And then if even if you can't operate there, you can't get your money out, you know, mining is a hard business and you don't need uh, government making it harder makes the returns horrible. When you look at the silver equities right now, um, I'm seeing, I guess, precious metals in general right now. You know, I've seen a bit of movement on the, the physical metal, ma mainly gold. Um, and then the largest producers or some of the largest companies in the world, uh, big royalty companies, you know, Wheaton's up 100% or sorry, 50% over the last six months. A lot of their peers, very similar. The big producers have performed very well over the last six months. 
the advanced stage developers haven't really received much love yet from investors. Um, my my assumption is that like every previous precious metal cycle that I've watched or read about, you know, this is very common where we'll see the funds trickle down to the developers and eventually the exploration companies, but in sequential order. Am I, you think I'm on the money to make that assumption that this is a very, very consistent with previous cycles where the metal gets some love, the producers and big royalty companies get some love, and then eventually investor sentiment starts to trend down to developers and eventually explorers. Yeah, so the royalty companies uh, have done well, but they were starting at a premium to nav, not everything, but certainly larger ones. And I think the you have now to pay more than two times of 5% nav on these royalty companies. The You're paying an extraordinary premium for the privilege of being there. That's not ca the case in some of the smaller royalty companies. We own a small smaller royalty company called Maduro um, that's got a... 10% free cash flow yield, but a lot of the larger royalty companies are really trading at premiums that just for better business value investors like us are just not interesting. Um, I agree with you in terms of where the market's not yet. So, you know, if you go back, so the GDXJ is down 70% from its peak in 2011. So that's 70% over 12 years. So that's just destroyed the investor base in this, in this uh, gold mining sector. Um, so if you have now the smaller companies with economic assets that are going to be mines, but aren't financed, that's where you're finding just these unbelievable distortions. You can buy, so like permitted and permittable assets, highly economic assets at $20 an ounce, uh, something like, uh, you know, benchmark and thesis. Uh, whereas if you go down to economic, but unpermitted, something like gold quest, you're trading at four or $5 an ounce. And you're not taking, it's not, it's not an extraordinary amount of geological risk. You just have a market that's saying, we don't want to be there for the part where you have to capitalize and then build this, right? That's, that's where we just have a lot of discomfort with your ability to even finance it and move forward in the first place. And we don't want to be there for that. And that's where you're getting sometimes you get things that just make no sense. So like in the case of uh, Galliano is uh, is an operator um, in Ghana. Uh, they're going to produce over 100 million ounces, uh, 100,000 ounces this year. And uh, that company trades at a modest premium to net cash, so like $30 million premium to net cash. Uh, and it's going to generate $20, $30 million in free cash flow this year. Um, so that just speaks to where we are in the cycle, which is there's very few people like us doing the company specific work and still have capital to go out and invest in these companies in a meaningful way. Mm. Okay. Okay. Sean, I want to thank you for, uh, for making the time for me today and for coming on the channel, getting in front of my audience, letting me pick your brain. Um, I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. I enjoyed it. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.